0: You're listening to a Cyberwire podcast from N2K Networks, powered by Dragos.
1: It's June 14th, 2023, and you're listening to Control Loop. In today's OT cybersecurity briefing, Dragos concludes that cosmic energy malware is not an immediate threat to OT systems. The Cyberspace Solarium Commission looks at obstacles to public private collaboration in the industrial sector. Organizations plan to increase their OT cybersecurity budgets. CISA and its partners have released a joint guide to securing remote access software, and the U.S. DOD holds its Cyber Yankee exercise. Today's guest is Will Edwards of Schweitzer Engineering Labs discussing cyber awareness syndrome. The Learning Lab has the conclusion of the discussion between Dragos' Mark Urban, Principal Adversary Hunter Kyle O'Meara, and Principal Intelligence Technical Account Manager Michael Gardner on threat hunting. Researchers at Mandiant last May announced their discovery of new malware that appeared it may have been designed to disrupt electrical distribution and associated critical infrastructure. Mandiant, which called the malware Cosmic Energy, was cautious in its assessment. The version the researchers obtained, for one thing, lacked a built-in discovery capability. Mandiant said that Cosmic Energy may in fact have been a Russian red-teaming tool used in exercises to simulate an electric infrastructure attack, but the discovery was significant enough to place operators on alert for a possible campaign against vulnerable OT networks. On Monday, however, Dragos released its own research into an assessment of cosmic energy. Their conclusion is far less alarmist than some earlier evaluations of the malware had been. Cosmic energy is not, they've determined, related to either in-destroyer or crash override. The researchers say after analyzing cosmic energy, Dragos concluded that it is not an immediate risk to OT environments. The primary purpose of cosmic energy appears to have been for training scenarios rather than for deployment in real-world environments. There is currently no evidence to suggest that an adversary is actively deploying cosmic energy. So, in this case at least, caution was prudent— but the initial concerns, the discovery aroused, seem to have been overblown. A Cyberspace Solarium Commission 2.0 report has found that the North American Electric Reliability Corporation's role in the Electricity Information Sharing and Analysis Center can discourage organizations from sharing information with the EISAC, Utility Dive Reports. The CSC states, our interviewees relayed that because the eISAC is located within NERC, which in turn is subject to oversight by FERC, in house counsels on occasion advise electricity companies not to share certain information with the ISAC for liability reasons. This is an obstacle without an obvious solution. Removing the eISAC from NERC would likely strip it of key funding and relationships central to the services it provides the sector. The CSC concludes that the Biden administration should make the following updates to the Presidential Policy Directive 21. First, clearly identify strategic changes, assign responsibilities, and ensure accountability for routine updates of key strategic documents. Clarify CISA's roles and responsibilities as National Risk Management Agency. Resolve questions around the organization and designation of critical infrastructure sectors and assigned SRMAs provide guidance on SRMA organization and operation, and facilitate accountability. These measures apply particularly to the protection of critical infrastructure, and that class includes, of course, those that use OT. Twelve of the 16 sectors identified as critical infrastructure fall into that category. Palo Alto Networks Unit 42 has published a study finding that between 2021 and 2022, The average number of attacks experienced per customer in the manufacturing, utilities, and energy industry increased by 238%. The researchers state, these industries face a wide range of security threats, including malware, ransomware, physical attacks, supply chain attacks, and vulnerability exploits. A report from DNV has found that the energy industry is increasing its investment in cybersecurity, 59% of energy professionals told DNV that their organization had increased spending on cybersecurity in 2023 compared to last year. 64% of respondents agreed that their organization's infrastructure is now more vulnerable to cyber threats than ever and say that their focus on cybersecurity has intensified as a result of geopolitical tensions. Despite this increased investment, only 42% of respondents believe their organization is spending enough on cybersecurity, and only 36% are confident their organization has made sufficient investments in securing their operational technology. Just under half of energy professionals believe that regulation is the most likely factor that will lead to increased spending on cybersecurity. A separate survey by Otorio found similar results— with 78% of respondents saying their organizations plan to increase their OT cybersecurity budgets this year. The researchers state that organizations that plan to increase their OT security budget will increase it by an average of 29%. Additionally, 85% of organizations actively and automatically track compliance with industry regulations and standards. CISA, the FBI, the MSISAC, and the Israeli National Cyber Directorate have released a joint guide to securing remote access software. The guide centers around detecting and preventing the use of legitimate remote access software and common exploits that could be used against an organization. One of the particular concerns about this software is that it is used in normal IT tasks. This allows the remote access tools to be exploited by threat actors typically remain undetected by antivirus tools or by endpoint detection and response defenses. Abusing remote access software doesn't require a threat actor to create a new capability. CISA explained in the guide, Remote access software enables cyber threat actors to avoid using or developing custom malware, such as remote access Trojans. The way remote access products are legitimately used by network administrators is similar to how malicious rats are used by threat actors. The Guide recommends, among other things, that organizations create a baseline of their normal activity and begin monitoring for unusual spikes that could indicate a compromise. For prevention and mitigation of this threat, the Guide strongly encourages organizations to implement zero-trust solutions whenever and wherever possible. Adding safeguards that prevent users from accessing a large number of machines in a short amount of time can also mitigate risks. The guide states, Use safeguards for mass scripting and a script approval process. For example, if an account attempts to push commands to 10 or more devices within an hour, re-trigger security protocols, such as multi-factor authentication, to ensure the source is legitimate. Some of the more consequential attacks against OT systems have originated in pivots from business systems, and so industrial operators would do well to attend to potential risks in remote access software. The U.S. Department of Defense last month held its Cyber Yankee exercise. The training event simulated a cyber attack against public utilities. A press release from the Marines explains that The goal of Cyber Yankee is to train military cyber operators, local, state, and federal-level government officials, and private companies how to defend themselves from a cyber attack. U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel Tim Hunt, Deputy Director of Cyber Yankee and full-time guardsman with the Massachusetts National Guard, stated, The fact we exercise with cyber professionals from the private sector and utility companies, we practice like we fight. So if there were something where we needed to get activated already knowing those people, already having relationships, it goes a long way getting soldiers and airmen into action and helping provide and support a response, take care of something that's affecting the citizens of the region. Our guest today is Will Edwards from Schweitzer Engineering Labs. Our conversation centers on the notion of cyber awareness syndrome.
2: That's going to vary a lot, right, with the different sectors. um, But that's kind of the beauty of a diagnosis is that it's our job to help understand where customers are at. And so a lot of that depends on how mature regulatory oversight or corporate security initiatives are within a company or within an industry vertical. So what do
1: you see as being some of the pain points here?
2: I mean, the pain points are going to vary from, you know, a lack of awareness, which is like what I talked about. And typically folks scramble for trying to gain that sense of awareness of what are the requirements and expectations to pain points associated with knowledgeable staffing. And how do I make the improvements that have been identified to you know, the actual implementation of security controls and the lifecycle management associated with those. And so I don't even think that the the pain points are the most important aspect of helping customers as much as helping the customer learn how to express what are the pain points
1: that they are experiencing and where we can help. Well, let's walk through what happens to someone who's experiencing this. I mean, they they find out that they... You know, something bad has happened. What happens then? What's the emotional reaction? Well, I mean, hopefully they're not going to start
2: thinking about cybersecurity only when something bad has occurred. Either leadership has made it a priority or government oversight or corporate initiatives have made this something that is important to these groups that are managing security. And so what I found is that there's actually a psychological link for their reactions to the stages of grief that someone would go through personally. Hmm. And so really the first thing is just complete shock of who owns this? What do I do? You know, if you think about the stages of grief, it goes from shock to denial to anger. And uh, there's a lot of confusion in those first initial steps.
1: And so how do you recommend people come at this? Given that reality, what sort of approach should they take? Well, I'll tell you what I've seen happen. And, you
2: know, I think that if you think about in terms of being agile and trying to improve quickly, the first reaction that I typically see is a really wide net approach where the human nature, for some reason, people want to solve problems with technology. So there oftentimes is an acquisition of technology that is improving security in some aspect then oftentimes there's an outreach to consultants for expert counsel and advice or acceleration of things like policy and procedure development. Some people want to immediately defer. And so they look for insurance, you know, just to defer some of that risk. And then other people immediately start investing in what is the actual appropriate staffing that's going to be necessary to achieve the objectives we're looking for.
1: And are they successful with this approach? Are there any parts that work better than others? There's a lot of success. I'm a big fan
2: of the idea that you can have micro wins with everything that you do. Hmm. But typically what I see is that out of that first round of a wide net approach, they achieve something I call paperwork glory, Hmm. where you can have a lot of results, metrics, policies and procedures Um, A lot of material such that you can feel like you've achieved something really meaningful because a lot of people want to achieve security quickly. I mean, right? Security can't wait. Adversaries don't just sit on the sideline while you get prepared. And so oftentimes there's this false sense of success through we have all our paperwork organized,
1: It reminds me of that old saying, you know, never confuse activity with progress, right? (laughs) I imagine someone sitting there with a big pile of paperwork, as you describe, and saying, look at all we've done here, but I I guess that doesn't necessarily um, lead to a good outcome. Let's move on and talk about some of the successes here. I I know you describe something as being a, a potential umbrella of IT success. What do you mean there? Right. So
2: many of the organizations we work with, when they see that there's a shortage of staffing, will lean on the corporate security or IT security resources that exist. And so when the CISO looks at the success of the organization, oftentimes the IT group can point to things like group policies and endpoint protection that achieve a high level of coverage and check a lot of the boxes from a corporate IT security perspective. And so... Initial reports will be presented as we are really secure. We have a lot of things uh, in a good spot, but really they're always being viewed from the perspective of what have we done on the IT side or the information technology side. And when you get to the industrial control systems or the OT networks, oftentimes that is something that isn't measured and therefore oftentimes isn't
1: accurately reported. I know there's an analogy you like to use with uh, the popular uh, movie that I think most of us know. Yeah, this is not my,
2: uh, this is not my analogy, but I did uh, fun, uh, run into a wise uh, cybersecurity director who was at least honest. And uh, he, he compared it to The Lion King with everything the light touches is secure. But that shadowy <laughs> area, that is OT cybersecurity, and you should never go there.
1: I love it. <laughs> I love it. Uh, it's a good one. What about the CISO themselves? I mean, as as you say, are are they looking at this with clear eyes? I do believe there is a,
2: like again, a psychological bias towards having a clouded perspective. It is. I, I've met with many CISOs, and initially, when cybersecurity encompasses OT, the CISO is typically from an IT background and is typically dependent on OT experts providing updates. And for some reason, there's a human nature expectation that you don't want to present bad results or lack of progress. And so oftentimes, even for the first year or two, that initial wave of information reporting is that Things are in a really good spot. There are no uh, major issues. We are compliant. I mean, heck, there's even oftentimes ways that people have passed audits. And so everything must be good. And, you know, from a CISO's perspective, you want to be able to believe that the company is is secure and defended against
1: uh, adversary attack. How does a CISO prevent themselves from falling into this dilemma of, of not seeing things the way they really are? Well, I think
2: it really goes back to metrics. I think any leader can wisely lead their organization through solid metrics and having an expectation that their division leaders own collecting and reporting on those metrics. And typically, you have to push through The first level of metrics and start asking questions for more detail about things like, uh, show me the exact security controls that have been applied this month or the plan of action and milestone progress that has been made. Um, Other examples could include things like, when was the last time that our organization operationally exercised the incident response plan or you know for example having expert counsel on annual improvements to policies and procedures that the ciso is actually going to be signing off on
1: you know as we're making our way through these stages of grief it strikes me that uh, you know anger is certainly on that list and and i think it's fair to say that most people don't like change how do those two things intersect
2: Yeah, there's a lot of evidence that this is an initial hurdle that you have to push through. And again, I'm really emphasizing that cybersecurity is an organizational success effort. And so what we see is that the first security control that impacts the workflow associated with how field technicians or engineers are used to doing things is met with a lot of frustration or anger, if you will. Um, Similarly, if there's an appeared delay in project schedule due to cybersecurity then oftentimes we'll say people will say well if you want this project to be done on time we can't do all of that security but you know if you were to compare that to safety there's a cultural expectation that you would never neglect safety aspects of a project similarly with cost you know people have a hard time bundling the cost associated with security for what was originally viewed as maybe an independent project for protection or automation and then lastly unfortunately human nature is such that as progress is being made resistance will show up in the form of workarounds where people will start using secondary devices people will start disabling administrative controls firewall exceptions will be added and forgotten to be removed. And so you you end up
1: kind of taking two steps forward and one one back in that situation. To what degree do you think communication can help with this here? I mean, I, I think you know a lot of times change comes from on high and they say, you know, you need to do this because we said so. But it strikes me that if you can explain to people the rationale behind the changes, that might soften the blow. That is a really good question. I, I, I would just say that there's
2: a few different things I've learned about trying to influence change and it's not as simple as you might think. There's a great book, Think Again by Adam Grant and another book, The Human Element by Lauren Nordgren that talk a lot about the human psychology and why things like scare tactics don't work and what change talks should look like. I think the main thing is that it has to be plan of communication, something that has scientific backing behind that strategy, because there's a lot of ways to miscommunicate why changes are being
1: put in place. So how do we get beyond these stages when people are having an emotional response to to these things, to these changes? How do we move on past that?
2: Well, I think one Wise step that many organizations realize is that they are no longer looking for that silver bullet technology. And I know that at SEL, we're a big fan of looking at root cause when we identify a pain point or a problem. And so, from a cybersecurity perspective, when organizations start looking at root cause for why they are facing these cybersecurity challenges, that's when they'll back themselves up to the point where they realize it all starts with things like supply chain. It all starts with who are we buying services and products from? How are we making our requirements clear during the procurement process so that things are being quoted with security incorporated into the design and integration efforts? And then how during design planning and testing? Are we ensuring that our security objectives are being met? And when you do that, you kind of organically solve some of the challenges. And I think it's a lot different from, you know, if you were to look at something like the NIST cybersecurity framework, where folks might say, oh, the first step is you just got to know what you've got. And you've got a baseline, you know, where your problems are at. That's not where the problem came from.
1: You know, all of this is taking place within a regulatory regime. How does that play into this? Yeah, there's, there's an analogy of uh, regulation
2: can freeze organizations and oftentimes even grant funding can freeze organizations where the idea of someone else paying for your security initiatives or the idea that you're going to invest in security improvements only to have regulatory uh, requirements change, essentially the finish line target, create a situation where people do nothing. and Organizations that have matured really see compliance with regulation as a baseline of security expectations, the bare minimum. And so they don't even blink at regulation because they know they're trying to push to industry best practice and their organization has matured such that they know that the investments they make are achieving their goal of reducing risk and doing things like easing the burden of cybersecurity maintenance throughout the life cycle of their systems. And so while on the back end, they may have engineers mapping the security uh, defense to frameworks for support of audits or compliance to regulation, they really aren't hindered in any way by grant funding or regulation that might be released.
1: And as an organization makes their way through, you know, these various stages, you know, we we talk about uh, reaching the stage of acceptance, you know, how do you know when you're, when you're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, when, when things are starting to heal? There's a, there's a few really good
2: signs, uh, that you can know that an organization is headed down the right path. And some of those are when they are eager to collaborate with experts, I mean, many of the customers that I visit, you see them at the industry sectors and industry committees actually invested in being a part of a community of experts. And so that collaboration helps optimize the way they make decisions. They also are continuously investing in education. Like that's the sign of a good engineer is when you can see that burning passion for them continuously learning. They're always asking for others to show them how they did that. They're looking for best known methods of either blogs or white papers or even formal training because they always want to be getting better. And that's what allows them again to guide an organization in the right direction with accelerated momentum And then there's a few more keys that you start to see where, of course, no organization has infinite budget or infinite time to improve security to an acceptable level of risk. And so you see these organizations starting to wisely apply things like priority filters, you know, a lot of the industry is aware of the term crown jewel analysis or business impact analysis. But when you see that operationalized into how investments and security controls are being applied and how centralized management is more than a tool investment, but it is actually a functional component of the workflows that people are using on a daily basis and that the reporting is no longer interns running around with Excel spreadsheets but it's actually meaningful progress towards supporting audits or reporting back to like I said the CISO who wants to have that visibility and then ultimately because of their maturity they end up Seeing the value in purpose built solutions from vendors, hmm. so that's really where I think you know the the closed loop aspect uh, happens is when you know the vendors of software and hardware are actually purpose building technology to align with mature organizations' expectations and recognition of value proposition.
1: What is your outlook here? I mean do you have a sense that there's increased awareness here that uh, more organizations are adopting these kinds of processes to to come at these issues in a more informed and rational way that's really what
2: i would ask industry uh, organizations to do is To pause and reflect and say, Am I somewhere along these stages of grief with regards to the progress we're trying to make as an organization? Have I gotten beyond the desire for technology to solve my problems? And I think you will see that in various organizations or various industry verticals, um, people are going to be at different levels of maturity. So, for example, in the electric industry in the United States, NERC SIP has. Um, mandated high-impact facilities and organizations to show proof of the progress across a holistic view of cybersecurity, but yet we've seen you know, that distribution and lower-impact facilities like renewable energy, independent power producers, even the water-wastewater industries have still got a long way to go. And so I would hope that they would reach out to industry experts to help them understand or diagnose, if you will, where they're at and to help make decisions from an organizational standpoint
1: that will put them in a better position to succeed. Our thanks to Will Edwards from Schweitzer Engineering Labs for joining us. Back in the Learning Lab, we have the conclusion of the discussion between Dragos's Mark Urban, Principal Adversary Hunter Kyle O'Meara, and Principal Intelligence Technical Account Manager Michael Gardner. They're talking threat hunting. Hi,
3: Mark Urban, once again with an episode of Learning Lab here on Control Loop. And we're going to focus on threat hunting. There are a couple of different types of threat hunting, and to kind of describe you know, some of those differences in the context that we're going to talk about today. I'm joined by Kyle Mara and uh, Michael Gardner here at Dragos. So as as you're walking through these processes, what are the what are the types of tools that you're using? You talked about there's tool sets that adversaries use. What are the kind of, what are the tool sets that that you're employing to you know conduct these hunts?
0: Well, I mean, you typically don't talk about your, your explicit sources, but I'll, I mean, I could highlight, I mean, you're looking you're having, you know, um, you have tools that, you know, look at network data, um, look at like give you sort of um, the insight to what an IP, like of a specific IP address, the insight to a specific domain tools. You have tools that give you specific insights to pieces of malware or just files themselves. Um, you have tools that give you specific insight to, that do a collection of, Scanning data that you can verify and, and look at, through, and, and and leverage the IP addresses and domains that you have to compare against that. Um, you have tools that collect different vulnerability type data, and you can understand that and pivot into that. And you know what what what's the landscape of that vulnerabilities across the internet and things like that. So there's for every different I have IOC, there is a company that has correlated all that data together to and package that up and sells that for different threat analysts, you know, hunters, researchers across all industries, whether it's inside or outside um, threat hunting to help you deduce what type of, uh, help, you know, build the case and help you understand what that IOC is. And is this something that you can, uh, you know, use to help solve your threat hunt?
4: From an asset owner operator perspective, you know, these are, Oftentimes the good reason to lean on a third-party intelligence source is because, again, you know, kind of going back to that aperture point, when you're looking at someone who spends their time hunting for adversaries in a broader capacity, they have that wider aperture and can help you to start to narrow that down. So that's one of the tool sets that you'd use at, at an asset owner operator. On top of that, you'd also be employing things like your sim and your uh, visibility solutions that you have in your environment. You may be looking to Deploy packet captures in specific domains of the network, and using packet capture analysis tools like Wireshark. If you actually identify something in your threat hunt, you know you may have a threat hunter that also has some forensic capabilities. They may be using some forensic tools to take a look at files or, or malicious code that was identified in an environment. All sort of things like that. It sounds like sifting through a lot of data. How do you figure out, you know, which which data is important? Not to keep harping on the point, but that's the reason for a strong hypothesis. There's a lot of planning that goes into carrying out a fruitful threat hunt. I'll talk about it from the, again, from kind of the, um, the individual company perspective, and Kyle can talk about it from that broader aperture. You know, when you're talking about, let's again, say kind of a medium to large sized oil and gas company or, or manufacturer, you know, you may have hundreds of thousands of endpoints in your entire network. You may have distributed sites in the OT realm. So you really can't have a fruitful threat hunt by just looking in that full solid domain, right? You can't look at the, entire, the entirety of the log sources that you have in your environment and expect to identify the, you know, the adversary lurking there. So that's where you want to lean on that hypothesis development again, looking at a specific adversary or a specific threat or a specific tactic or technique and identifying where that would be leveraged to the most gain for an adversary. Once you have kind of that assessment, you can start to narrow down where that is relevant in your environment and take a look at those log sources specifically, really, again, starting to narrow that aperture and make it more likely that you'll actually identify something in the timeline you've laid out for a hunt.
0: I think from like, you know, the other angle too is, you know, I think the analogy I was just thinking about is that we just don't use one tool when I'm looking at an IP address. I'm using multiple different tools to look at that. And I think a good analogy is like, there's two sides to every story. The truth lies in the middle. So I don't believe in one just, you know, third-party source. I take a different couple. I see what each are saying. Sometimes there's a little nuances of each because maybe when they collected the data, when they got the data themselves and things like that. So you kind of make mini hypotheses of what's going on of your data set when you're looking at different, you when you're leveraging different tools and then you know, you take that truth that you believe is, a, you know, and you slap an assessment on that and then you use that sort of to um, keep driving on, you know, to answer your hypothesis.
3: Yeah. Gotcha. So so a hypothesis helps keep you focused and not stray too far off course. And, you know, and, and as you're focusing, and you come across a piece of information, then you're you're using a number of tools to, to gather context, and then you're synthesizing the kind of conclusions around that particular item that you're looking at. Okay, so a little bit of science and a little bit of art, which is why you want people doing it. You know, with with a history not only doing it but doing it in the specific domain of you know grids and manufacturing plants and pipelines and water systems etc let's move to what's the outcome of a threat hunt you know talked a lot about the, the the intel sources the process kind of the some of the art and science involved with managing that process what's what's the outcome that you're looking for what's a good outcome what's a bad outcome maybe as part of that
0: Sort of what my outcome from like a a threat hunter standpoint, you know, the ultimate goal um, here at Dragos is to produce content for our customers, you know, on the Intel team, as well as then what kind of detection ideations or detections can I share over to our detection team to get them into the platform, right? So there's kind of those, you know, two angles. Based on my hypothesis and my hunt and my conclusions and some assessments, you know, I put together a report that I put out and that report might have a lot, it might be very tactical, which typically a lot of times it is. So it's has, you know, the TTPs, the attack vectors, the IOCs associated with some type of, you know, incident or a cluster or that the threat group is doing. Um, it might be operational um, a little more sort of digging into that part, or it might be strategic level. I haven't touched much of that type of uh, reporting, but we have those all different types of reporting that is, you know, simply those type of threat intelligence type reporting. but. And then that just goes out to our customers, and they, uh, you know, I'll pivot over to Michael to how they get that into their hands and what they do with that.
4: Yeah, thanks, Kyle. And I think that uh, I think that the ways that you would leverage Intel reporting from a third party source like Drago's are in many ways very similar to what you'd sort of follow up a threat hunt with internally. So I kind of want to start with one point that I really like to make. I think that. There's a huge misnomer when we talk about threat hunting, where people kind of think that a successful threat hunt means you found an adversary, that you've identified malicious activity, and now you've kicked off an incident response. Obviously, that's successful in its own way, where you're proving security posture by <laughs> hopefully eradicating an adversary. But I don't think that's entirely true, because just carrying out the threat hunt is something that can lead to successes and other types of wins from a security posture perspective. So Kyle touched on um, kind of the tactical. So Maybe that's developing um, specific indicators of compromise or ingesting them from a third party source and leveraging those for threat detection. It might also be kind of uh, identifying new tactics, techniques, or procedures that you don't maintain the ability to detect in your environment. And that kind of moves you into those operational wins. So building detections in your environment. One big thing that may happen for a threat hunter at an individual organization is they may identify a gap in log sources. Or a report that Kyle or someone from our Intel team may have wrote may have pointed them to a specific domain that they know exists in their OT environment. They know they have no visibility into that environment. Also might help you to streamline processes for future hunts and help you um, uh, sort of narrow down the way that you develop those hypotheses and carry out a hunt in more quicker succession so that you're able to be more efficient. And then uh, again, Kyle touched on strategic points, but I think some of the strategic wins that come out of threat hunting and that come out of intelligence reporting are, are really key, especially when we're talking about OT and so many organizations are, are moving along the, the maturity curve and improving their security posture in OT. So that's kind of providing analysis to strategic stakeholders like executive leaders and various security leaders, also business leaders that sort of own the environments that you are hunting in. Again, highlighting those gaps, highlighting the feasibility of some sort of malicious activity uh, being employed in an environment like that, and talking about what mitigative actions need to be taken in order to prevent that can help sort of lead to that continuous strategic security posture improvement.
3: Good info. And I wanted to click backwards to something Kyle said. You said you kind of had two outputs, Kyle. One was content and that's for the subscribers of the Dragos Worldview Intelligence Service, right? That you provide reports that give that tactical, operational, and strategic level intelligence for OT delivered through that. And the other thing you said is, you know, to feed the detections. And I assume you're talking about how that intel is used by the Dragos software platform and technology platform because we, you know, that platform sits on the network and it's monitoring traffic and that fires off the detections when the intelligence that you created that's then compiled into software code that then fires off a detection to tell a Drago's customer if they've got something that looks like a threat in their environment. Is that a fair description? 100%.
0: They nailed it right there.
3: Talk a little bit more about worldview, and Michael, I know you kind of really focus in this area those are reports that customers consume, uh, including IOC feeds and other TTP feeds that can feed into their intelligence. Just talk a little bit about how that manifests. What would a an electrical utility, a manufacturing, you know, company, how would they see and consume that type of information?
4: Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. So I I've, I feel like uh, we could play a drinking game off of my use of the word aperture. But again, Kyle's got that really, really wide scope. Um, he's focusing on actors and techniques and, and tool sets that are focused on operational environments and industrial organizations. So you as a asset owner operator with you know more specific focus can begin to digest that reporting that's coming out of a source like Worldview to first off understand what the capabilities are in operational environments overall. I kind of like to think of it as layered threat landscapes. So you have kind of the the overall ICS threat landscape. And there's a lot of commonalities in technologies and processes, um, regardless of if you're talking about an electric utility or a water utility or a um, aviation manufacturer, there's always going to be similar processes there. There's also a lot of differences. So that's why the threat landscape starts to kind of shift down. Then you can start to develop an understanding of the threat landscape for your industry vertical specifically. So beyond just understanding the capabilities of adversaries in ICS overall, you start to understand what the capability is for, or what the capabilities and intent of adversaries are in electric. And then you can start to kind of break that down by geographic region as well. By ingesting all of that information, you start to understand what your threat landscape actually is and compare that against your specific threat surface. So what technologies are used in your environment? that are similar to ones that were targeted by an adversary in the past. How can we improve our architecture? How can we improve our incident response capabilities? How can we develop more intentional visibility into these environments is kind of one of the most important sort of strategic questions that you can ask out of consuming threat intelligence. Um, And then kind of moving down that line again, from an operational perspective, you can start to actually inform your blue team and red team uh, security personnel on what they should be actually looking for in your environment. You're not going to have a malicious event every single day. Um, So you can learn from the events that we've seen in the past. And then as we kind of move down again into the tactical level, you can start to ingest things like indicators of compromise. Um, And when we're talking about indicators of compromise, that can mean a lot of things, right? But in many cases, Kyle might be reporting on a specific family of malware that is active today um, and being leveraged by an adversary at real organizations like yours. So if Kyle shares indicators of compromise that are used with that malware families like C2 channels, you know, IP addresses associated with command and control, you could start to take proactive action to block that activity and prevent the risk of a similar campaign occurring at your organization in real time. You can also just start to develop detections in your environment based on the techniques that you're seeing. So there's really kind of an endless possibility of how you can actually operationalize and action threat intelligence. Um, I think one of the really important points is also understanding uh, the vulnerability research that we do here at Dragos or at, you know, tons of different intelligence providers, understanding how they're identifying vulnerabilities, how they're successfully able to exploit them. And then ensuring that you have a vulnerability management process to take action on the vulnerabilities identified, but are able to recognize as well what some of the sort of more offensive actions that were taken by those researchers were. So that you can deploy efficient mitigation techniques in your environment.
3: That's a good segue into. I think the, the next segment is going to be on vulnerabilities. Uh, I did want to circle back. I'm an old line network infrastructure guy. Came out of the kind of the proxy world and endpoint security, etc. This is a this is a unique OT area. There are unique adversaries that that are focused on that. And, you know, some of the outputs of this is information around IP addresses or other kind of indicators of of compromise that you can simply drop into a firewall block list. I mean, to be preventative in that capacity, right? And that's the type of intelligence that you typically wouldn't see or you probably won't see. There are plenty of those intelligence services in the IT side Many fewer uh, on the OT side. And so I thought this was an interesting thing, but you have that converged infrastructure of firewalls that you know, can take and feed from multiple places. Analysts and intelligence integration things that can take advantage of, you know, the different services. You know, you have services focused on IT. And if you're an industrial organization, how important it is to remember that. Manufacturing systems are different than IT. You know, uh, distributed control systems are different. SCADA systems are different from the IT world, and I think that's what we want to kind of bring home as a conclusion. This is a, a very rich topic of threat hunting, and again, just kind of drawing the difference between you know the the much more prevalent focus on IT versus kind of the specialty, you know, the specialty adversaries out there, the specialty tactics, and the specialty. Threat researchers and threat hunters that, that we have here. Gentlemen, Michael, Kyle, much appreciated. This is a, like I said, there's a very rich topic. Uh, I'm Mark Urban with Michael Gardner and Kyle Mera from Dragos on the Learning Lab. Thanks very much.
1: And that's Control Loop, brought to you by the Cyberwire and powered by Dragos. For links to all of today's stories, check out our show notes at thecyberwire.com. Sound design for this show is done by Elliot Peltzman with mixing by Trey Hester. Our senior producer is Jennifer Ivan. The script was written by Tim Nodar. Our Dragos producers are Joanne Rush and Mark Urban. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next time.